making friends in Russia, getting people to open up and talk to you a requires lot a lot of drink yeah. and, 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 and frankly more than even I can be comfortable with. You can with. drink a fair amount. I mean, I've seen, I've seen your show. But a, a bottle a day of vodka is, uh, you know, it, 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 it has an effect. Welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain. I'm Emily Fedner, a former line cook, pasta pop-up owner, and the creator behind Food Lover's Diary. And I'm Fabrizio Villapondo, also known as The Moody Foodie. I'm a former waiter turned food-obsessed home cook and recipe developer. You might be familiar with the Friends of Bourdain Instagram and TikTok account. That was started by our producer as a way of keeping Bourdain's legacy alive. So this is about you, his fans. We want to continue the conversations about Tony's travels. So that's why we started this podcast, actually, as fans ourselves who are inspired by Bourdain. And each week we get to return to parts unknown or parts now known. We'll reconnect with the friends Anthony Bourdain traveled the world with, revisit the places they traveled to, and explore what's changed since they last visited. All as told by his friends. This week, we are excited to speak with Zamir Gada. One of the most iconic guests or friends of Anthony Bourdain on his show. I wouldn't be surprised if he probably starts off the episode with like a shot of vodka. Truly a man that needs no introduction. I mean, this guy, he's the OG fixer. He's a Russian producer. He's written books, has his own vodka line. He's truly the international man of mystery, as Tony put it. Besides like the actual cast and crew, he's been on the most episodes with Bourdain and they've traveled everywhere from Georgia and Uzbekistan to St. Petersburg and Moscow and Ukraine. Oh, and of course, can't forget Romania. Romania went down in history as one of the biggest shit shows episodes that was also very iconic in its own right because everything went wrong but it made for like absolutely hilarious tv unlike every travel show previously that i'm aware of and food show for sure we have the luxury of acknowledging when things go dreadfully wrong when everything is just when things are terrible when we fail and romania was just a terrible failure we we made a lot of bad pre-production mistakes one of them was getting my Russian friend Zamir to go to a former Soviet bloc country where they don't particularly like Russians and stumble around drunkenly calling everybody comrade. So right away, we had a big problem. Zamir is such a character throughout all seasons of Bourdain's shows, and they became such close friends. So it's going to be really exciting to speak to him about, first of all, what it was like to just be an OG fixer for mm -hmm. Bourdain in that part of the world, and then how they're friendship and things evolved. Yeah, and uh, you know, just seeing two guys from completely different lives just come together. And I mean, you see it in every episode with Zamir. That's my favorite part. The the sense of humor, the chemistry that they have, I mean, it's just it's crazy. I hope you'll enjoy the typical Russian breakfast in a public place. Yeah, I think yesterday I already had two shots of vodka by this time of day. I'm personally very excited because Zamir reminds me of every uncle I have. Mm, yeah, same here. <laughs> Given my okay. Russian background. Down to the vodka, down to business ideas that were like such a part of all of his episodes. He was always pitching Bourdain on different business ventures and now he has a vodka brand. Now let's welcome Zamir Gada, a friend of Anthony Bourdain. Hi, Zamir. Hello, Zamir. How are you doing? Hey, guys. We're super excited to have you on as a very longtime friend of mm -hmm. Anthony Bourdain's. And I guess to start, we just would like to ask you, can you take us back to when you first met Tony, when that was and what it was like? What was your first impression? Hard to believe. It's uh, 22 years ago. And interestingly enough, about the same week. No, actually, it was the first week of February when I decided to join a young, ambitious journalist, as I was recommended by my film network in New York City, and to help him do the first kind of test 
on camera with the potential show. At that time, I guess nobody really knew what was going on, and least for myself. And as a you know fixer for different uh, film projects in uh, uh, Russia, end of 90s and uh, early 2000s. I was thinking for a little bit because I wasn't a young man at that time. I think we both were like 44. I used to work with more like prima donna kind of uh, <laughs> TV people, you know, like uh, Diane Sawyer, that couple when, you know, budget was not a problem. And, you know, as they would say, money is our middle name. So we would definitely have decent hotels. By decent, I meant four or five stars hotels to work, uh, you know, on a serious project. But this time they were pretty upfront by saying, hey, you know, it's kind of uh, privately funded. I had no idea who was funding it at that time. You'll have to rent two apartments in St. Petersburg. So that was a little bit of a red flag <laughs> to someone who was already a little bit spoiled. But probably the curiosity, I would think overwhelmed myself and uh, it was definitely not the type of fee I would normally go to elsewhere outside of Moscow though I did like and still do like St. Petersburg where that episode was uh, planning to be filmed so I kind of talked to myself you know I'll meet my friends even the guys boring or something you know I never worked with the chefs you know I wasn't a a foodie and I can say I'm I'm a foodie now definitely (laughs) Tony did transform me into much more knowledgeable guy about the food and preparation at that time I didn't really care much and then when they said he just you know wrote a book it seemed like an interesting guy wants to try his luck with the tv show I said Okay, though it was pretty cold and that was another issue I was considering you need to be filming in St. Petersburg. I think it was about minus 20 centigrade, so it could be like plus 5 Fahrenheit. Yeah, I wasn't expected to have much fun, but you know, I have friends in St. Petersburg. It's a beautiful city, actually one of my uh, favorites uh, around the world. So the, the kind of negotiations was pretty fast. I didn't negotiate the fees. I said, okay, guys, if that's what you have, I'm happy to help this ambitious man. Mm. To make him a star. <laughs> I mean, I remember in that episode, it is crazy to think that that was Tony before he was Anthony Bourdain, right? And I remember yes. that first episode, that opening shot, it's just the weather looks so treacherous. So I'm kind of curious, like, could he handle the cold St. Petersburg weather? Now you'll better understand why I had to bring the water to be more in the, in the spirit in the of uh, déjà vu. Because frankly, the cameras wouldn't survive, right? What about human beings? Mm. So... Uh, I had to bring my cameraman of choice. God bless his soul, Igor Borisenko. He was, I think he was about our age, like maybe 40, but he passed away when he turned 50. A very, very professional guy and very nice guy, you know, always like fitting into the spirit of the show and very much as a camaraderie guy. So I would normally recommend him for a similar project because uh, at that time, Tony had only Chris Collins, who eventually became his partner and found uh, 0.0 production at that time chris and that's what i realized once we finally met face to face was part of that amazing romantic couple with uh, lydia and they were behind all of that project from what i realized later it was hard for them to convince tony as you definitely know now to try and do his luck like as a tv journalist mm. as a traveling chef because honestly he was very insecure Mm-hmm. And that would show on camera. So probably you won't be surprised that during the first night, I just picked them up. Basically, it was 
Tony, his first wife, Nancy. And interestingly enough, like 30 minutes before our scheduled interview, I came across the photo I've never seen. I'm not sure which group of Tony fans it was posted. That was the graduation photo Chris Urdan took of Tony and Nancy when it was graduation party at Culinary Institute. And they were so cute. And that's <laughs> basically similar to what I found them to be when I met them at Pulkova Airport in St. Petersburg. Yeah, well, they were pretty down to earth, both looking more like hippie guys, <laughs> sort of not not very engaging in any mm. kind of conversations with strangers like Zamir. And Chris, Chris was more like icebreak at that time. So he was kind of producing, directing, uh, shooter number one. And eventually when he realized that Igor, my, my guy, was much mm. more experienced, he did assigned him to be the unit one and was more like follow-up and unit two, basically trying to focus more on the shot, what we want to do. And honestly, that was probably the first most unprepared show I was ever invited to. With people like Nightline and the Primetime and, you know, BBC, you would have minimum a month to set it up. But this time it was more like, let it flow. I only knew that they wanted to have as the prime of the show, and it was very brief, mm. like probably one paragraph of a tagline for me to understand. You became yeah. the like last minute, right? They had someone else whom they had in mind, but the guy, I guess, disappeared, probably not really inspired by this kind of money and uh, mm. rent departments. <laughs> so somehow, I think they reached out to the network in New York City. That's how it worked. And mm-hmm. I don't remember there was much of a, you know, internet access those days. Now, actually, it was just starting. And you couldn't find people like without references, right? To meet someone or to, to talk to someone. So I guess they reached out to my uh, pretty extensive network in New York City, because that's where Chris and Tony were based. And yeah, someone did recommend me. That's how they actually located me. Then <laughs> in the last... Uh, <laughs> week opening that's why probably another reason as far as i remember there was not really much time to make things happen Mm -hmm. in a professional way Mm -hmm. and that's what i complained about normally i don't complain so the guys i deliver the goods so with this kind of a short notice without any real storyline it was just like you know nothing special tony needs to find uh, someone who would cook kulebiaka which was a fish pie recipe basically not used anymore in that contemporary rush of uh, 2001. And I was open about it by saying, hey, it might take me some time, but from what I know, and I'm mm-hmm. not the foodie, it's not an easy recipe to do at home. They said, okay, you know, try your luck. So they were not pushing, which is good because, mm-hmm. you know, with ABC type of people, you're always under pressure now. You cannot like take your opinion on anything. They knew better than anyone else what they wanted you to do, which was good on on the one side of it. But when you try to bring some creative local authenticity into the show, which most Americans unfortunately don't really Mm. understand not being, you know, natives or Mm. spending too much time in uh, the country they want to go. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that it happened several times that they wanted something which was not either realistic or was not feasible to set up together. But with my reputation, they would normally listen. So this time, Chris said, okay, Zamir, don't worry, you know, try to find some different places to show the different style of food where people go on a fancy day or just simple like street kind of food. And they said, you're in the middle of winter and it is freezing. So forget about the street food. But they said, 
okay, maybe some kind of, you know, coffee shop, something where people go for breakfast. And I said, okay, guys, the good news is I have very professional subfixes and I rely on them in St. Petersburg. So there were my friends, Svetlana and Alexei. Alexei actually was a pretty famous musician at that time, but he agreed to be our van driver, so to say. He had a nice Jeep, and that was enough at that time with just four of us, basically. Yeah, Chris, Igor, Zemir, and uh, Tony. Very basic dumpling joint, you know, Russian pilmeni style, uh, not far from the apartment we rented. And he told me, like, after the first bottle was consumed and probably second was already on the way to be delivered zamir it seemed like you are an icebreaker and i really need you in front of the camera not behind the camera and i said well tony i don't really care as long as it makes you feel more comfortable and secure you know he really never had enough experience to be on camera and be comfortable talking to the people. We don't really know whom we meet. Mm -hmm. You know, I had some ideas where to go, but there was no time to meet these people and to set it up properly, especially like uh, the first scene, if you remember, we were walking around this Neva River, the the frozen river, and basically bumped into the couple of committed ice fishmen. So that's basically how the, the show started to shape up. So that first day was very much depending on the weather. And since it was really brutal, we still decided to start, but the camera, I don't remember which Sony Eager had. I think it was enough for about 15, 20 minutes at a time. Then they would bring it back to the Jeep to warm it up for another 20 minutes. So that was kind of a disaster. It was meant to be. And we both were surprised that we kind of connected as if we've done that before on camera. Tony felt much more easier with me now talking to the guys in Russian first, kind of Mm -hmm. preparing them with five minute notice. The more I think about it, uh, the more I believe that was probably the most unprofessionally preset show i've ever been into my whole life (laughs) well i'm sure that things changed a lot throughout all the years and all the episodes that you worked with tony bourdain out of all of the different places you visited with him what was your favorite trip and maybe what was the most memorable thing that happened all 10 of them were memorable in many different ways because it always depends on the crew tony tried to have Zach and Todd most of the time when I was involved. So it was more like camaraderie, right? So you basically meet the same people. You already know what to expect, how to move. Everyone knew exactly how to have your back just in case something is not cooking right. From the location's point of view, I would think for my personal fun element, that was Uzbekistan. Mm. Because that was the first show we did, basically, after St. Petersburg, when I didn't expect ever to see Tony because, you know, I had no idea what this show would be about. It was like one of the test pilot thing they were filming with Chris from what I remember. And when two years ago, Chris reached out to me. I think we were in, in correspondence, yeah, because uh, Nancy connected to my wife, Katya. They were having dinner on the last day, though Moscow was not in the plans. But since Tony was uh, completing the Cook's tour as part of his trip to Russia as a uh, Russian episode, he really did want to visit, you know, Moscow to walk in the Red Square, etc. So, yeah, they did stop for a day 
day and a half in Moscow on the way out from Russia. Chris wasn't there, so they had dinner at our home where I am now, actually. And we had beautiful party, like, you know, four mm-hmm. of us. Normally, when you're over 40, you don't make new, new friends, friend, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of outlive that nuances. You kind of stick with the people you know, mm-hmm. you like. That makes me curious. You know, I was re-watching uh, a couple of weeks ago the Ukraine episode and also like the St. Petersburg episode when you meet him for the first time. That's many years apart and you were in so many episodes. During that St. Petersburg shoot, did you ever think, I think I'm going to be friends with this guy that I just met? Or did you have any notion that you might be, you know, featured again or you're going to see him ever again? No, no, Mm -hmm. nothing of the kind. Because first of all, I thought it would be a failure. Because as I told you, you can't shoot things like this. It was not in the style I used to work with serious Mm -hmm. networks, right? Mm -hmm. So I just thought, you know, I would never... I would never actually meet him again, no matter that we liked each other. But, you know, coming back to Russia, mm-hmm. once he already exposed his interest, we did find a person who managed to, to create that Kulibak edition at home. It took her a couple of hours. To and and find Bourdain things. did not seem super enthused by that dish, <laughs> as I remember. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he was a little bit an idealist in, in many ways, right? He thought, much more of something he fell in love with, right? Mm -hmm. Not just the people, but in the same way, he was kind of idealizing situations in many ways. So Mm -hmm. he did think that the more he wrote and read about Russia, the history, the czar, and the noble society kind of thing. So that's how, I guess, he had a little bit of a twisted understanding of Russia mm. when he got there in 2001. You know, it's like the first salad is never clear. You expect something, you want to make it like something special, but at the end of the day, I don't remember he really enjoyed eating it. Really. Coming from a Russian background myself, I appreciated uh-huh. his honesty. Like I have had many friends throughout my life where they would come to my house and have siliotka or ikra and things like that. And yeah. they hate it and they are grossed out. But I feel like Tony really went into each situation and gave everything an honest try and loved the smoked fish at the banya and things like that. And for me, as I've seen those foods rejected over and over again by people in my life, it was really like heartwarming to see him actually enjoy Russian food and Ukrainian food. Well, true. He did enjoy Russian food and Ukrainian food. But maybe from what I recall, we had hangover on that day when the Kulibaka scene took place at that apartment. Because the day before, the night before, we were having the Ruski restaurant, one of the most fancy schmancy kind of Russian mm-hmm. food, appeared in St. Petersburg at that time, mostly like for the kind of a businessman who would bring their girlfriends to impress them <laughs> with huge uh, variety, you know, of caviar, tamagon, this, you know, uh, homemade vodka. And we got so much drunk that the next day, yeah, the whole shoot moved from early morning to much later because I remember we went <laughs> to the market. We bought what uh, Tamara, I think, or Luba Luba was the name of that home chef she needed. And then I think we had a nap. At least I remember myself having a nap. Luckily, we were in different apartments. I'm not sure if Tony had it. In the evening, maybe he, he was a little bit I would say low energy, but somehow exclamatory notes of him finding the the meal of his choice. He was much more, you know, up to the normal like Russian style dumplings or the blintzy or piroshki we had mm. the night before with some caviar and uh, you know salted salmon. More kind of a standard than mm. that. A little bit of a out of line, meaning that 
you know, there was no more noble type of people who would prepare that meal like Kulibaka for hours. It was hard. We couldn't find it in any restaurant, actually, if I remember correctly, when we went to. Back to your question, I didn't expect that something good will happen with the show like this. I knew Mm -hmm. it was just one of the parts of other countries involved, but honestly, I had no expectations. Want to travel the world like Anthony Bourdain? This episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain is sponsored by Monos. Monos is an award-winning travel and lifestyle brand that makes timeless premium goods for the mindful traveler. Their collection of luggage, bags, clothing, and accessories is designed with intention, crafted with care, and made to last. One of my favorite Bourdain travel quotes is this. If I'm an advocate for anything, it's to move. As far as you can, as much as you can. Across the ocean or simply across the river. The extent to which you can walk in someone else's shoes or at least eat their food, it's a plus for everybody. Open your mind, get up off the couch, move. Monos values simplicity and believes that well-designed, premium travel products don't need to be loud and flashy. They simply speak for themselves. In today's throwaway society of passing trends and mass consumption, Monos designs their pieces to be timeless classics with an understated aesthetic that stands the test of time. Monos is inviting listeners of the Friends of Anthony Bourdain podcast to learn more about their story and experience, their collection of premium travel goods firsthand, and for a limited time, are offering 15% off your purchase at monos.com using the code BORDAIN15. Every episode that you're in with Tony, the chemistry is undeniable, right? Did you see, you know, notice maybe a shift or like, did he change a bit on or off camera as you got to know him over the years and traveled with him? No, that was really something uh, fascinating, Mm -hmm. you know. First 10 years, the Russian show was 2001, 2005, I think we did that Uzbek show. And then within the next six years, by 2011, he was basically a star uh, by the time he switched to CNN. And at least from my experience, nothing really changed in his behavior. Uh, I definitely read many other people, both from the crew and not only sharing the impressions that some of them mentioned that it was harder to work with him. He was more like a perfectionist. But perfectionist doesn't mean that he changed his personal attitude Mm -hmm. to the people he liked. From the professional point of view, the way he still wanted to have me in two capacities, which was kind of strange for many of us, both as a field producer setting up the show, because I guess he, from day one, he started trusting my instincts, Mm -hmm. which are important, you know, for the show like this, where there are many moving parts, whom to choose, what kind of situations I knew he would enjoy. Because I think we did have a similar sense of humor. Mm-hmm. His humor was much darker, to give him credit. <laughs> yeah. uh, mine was not. I did happen to crack him up. So from this standpoint, back to your question, why that episode in Uzbekistan for me was one of the most memorable. That scene in the Banya, in the Uzbek Banya, <laughs> which happened at, at the very last day, which was not already in my plan, sadly, for one simple reason. I try never to hire the kids into professional work, but at that time, I had no choice because my cousin, who actually made a big impact of me, he's more of a Uzbek line, a family, uh, Akhror, he, uh, by 2005, he's already a well-established film director. He uh, graduated from Moscow Film Academy, one of the most prestigious in the Soviet Union. And he, with nine years difference, he invited me to the film set. So from that day, 
day one, probably I got really involved into cinematography big time. I got exposed to many cinematographers, directors, you know, um, cameramen. And that really helped to change my perception of cinematography in general. That actually, that was a very common topic which connected me and Tony when we started talking. Like, I think one of the first questions I said, guys, what do you know about Russia? What names? And then apart from Peter the First, the Russian Tsar, it was Sergei Eisenstein. And that was a very good sign that Tony happened to be like connoisseur of Eisenstein's movies. He knew about his editing. So that's how probably we really got close to each other, which mm. normally doesn't happen on day one. Mm-hmm. So that Uzbek cousin of yours is the one who coordinated the Banya scene? He was my subfixer, right? So before going to Tashkent, I did come for a scout, which I normally do like for a week. And when he showed me what locations he would recommend, what events would give us more of a access to, you know, like a real life of real uh, Uzbek people. I wanted to have that Uzbek Banya scene, but he was kind of hesitant saying, Zamir, we're very shy. We don't want to expose very shady looking old style of something. Kind of a hard fight because, you know, he was nine years older with all my respect to his credentials. I did say, Ahror, I need it. And I think his excuses like it's not open today or something is not working and on the last day okay he said you wanted it you got it and when i saw what it was like it was really like old style not too many people would attend it but that was interesting for me from the cinematography point of view i have to give credit to myself in a good and a bad way that i tipped the masseur thinking that if i pay him before he performs i didn't know what kind of massage he had in mind i just said hey, I would tip you now so I know you would take a good care of my friend, right? Mm-hmm. And now you know everything became history, what he did with Pure Tony. The Uzbekistan episode is probably one of my favorites I watched, and I was crying laughing the entire time because I've been to many, I've been to many Abanya mm-hmm. in New York. It's not quite the same. It was one of my favorite scenes. But beyond that, something that I kept thinking about when I was watching your episodes with Tony was the sheer amount of vodka consumed. Where yes. did you guys allot for hangover time, or how did that work? Believe me or not, on that day we probably had no vodka at all because in Uzbekistan still, you know, it's uh, not a very strict. Con- conservative Muslim community, but it's still a Muslim country. I doubt we had any vodka. I would definitely remember. So it just happened on the last day, not expected. And I thought I would be fired after what, you know, I saw was happening. The one time you probably and, really uh, needed the vodka. <laughs> yeah. So after that, we definitely had uh, as, a, as a rap party, but not before. So Tony really did need something because he wouldn't expect that guy exposing him on camera and the kind of sufferings he had mentally and probably emotionally more than than physically you know he was still a shy guy don't forget that you know 2005 mm-hmm. it wasn't still like the prime career he was shy the banya in romania you take him to this like dracula themed bar in ukraine his final meal in ukraine is mcfoxy's clearly you enjoy like taking anthony to these like very unexpected places for a food and travel show. Did you do that intentionally? Did you want to sort of like get him out of his comfort zone? What was his reaction off camera with those? I had to provoke him into something he wouldn't expect. And, you know, I knew I was taking a very thin line. You know, people tell openly like three taboos. I think one of the taboos was 
never to dance on camera, never karaoke, and there was something else. And I did have to provoke him into that wedding scene in Uzbekistan to try and join the, the dancing thing. I'm sure you understand. It's not that I wanted to humiliate him or... Mm. These are the moments when a person, a host, can be exposed in a very original, mm-hmm. authentic... You know, we always had unscripted thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the show. When you know exactly what's going to happen next minute, you're ready for it, right? So with being triple unscripted, that's what he knew I could bring to the table. That's mm-hmm. how I explain why he basically insisted that I became their guide in Romania and fix it because... It didn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. As you as you understand, I didn't invite myself to be cowed guy and to be the guy who brought them to Romania. They just asked me, like, Zamir, what countries do you think are interesting for Tony to visit in Europe? And they said, well, Romania, you know, and explained the reasons that, you know, the Dracula thing. And I was always fascinated with this kind of a world of, you know, gypsies and not real understanding of what Romania is like, kind of a mystery behind mm-hmm. that country and the people. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And it just coincided that uh, it was planned to be as my actually 50th birthday. Oh, my God. 16 years ago. <laughs> I think that what was so funny is that you kept, for lack of a better word, putting Tony in these like torturous situations. And he kept saying, we still got to go with Samir. It was some of the best moments of the entire show of all Absolutely. the seasons. The Uzbekistan Banya, the, the the Romania episode. These episodes go down in history as some of the best. And, you know, I think you know what you're doing here. You got the best reactions from him. Well, thank you. As professionals, you, you do understand that it was not about my ego. And believe me or not, people are people. In many ways, I would recall that there were some kind of not-too-funny people on the internet who would approach me and say, oh, Zamir, thank God you showed that skinny dude what life would be about. So some of them really liked the way he was sort of mutilated or mm-hmm. sort of mistreated <laughs> or whatever. You know, people are people, you know. That's what I always would tell him, Tony, don't expect everyone would love the locations or the kind of fun we have, you know. As long as you and me enjoy it, maybe it was a little bit uh, selfish, let's do it now because otherwise people won't understand what kind of people you are i think it does create like beautiful moments it really does show that connection through like sense of humor going back to the ukraine episode you guys go to chernobyl you guys are have been drinking a lot of vodka and the radioactive meter starts going off and then i love throughout the episode every time you guys are buying food is this imported from chernobyl and then tony's like all right zamir you don't have to ask everyone if the (laughs) the food they're serving us but i think it's so funny it just shows that relationship it's so great honestly uh, with chernobyl it's good that you brought it up i think i was giving him a little bit too much of a drama to be expected in a kind of a more funny way so that he doesn't feel twice to go there or not to go that our wives were not happy that's why I had to refer to Octavius signing a release form for him to go, you know, going to Ukraine without going to Chernobyl. People say we're pussies and stuff, you know. <laughs> so we had to do it. Sometimes maybe it was too much of a risk to do something, but at the, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a show. You it know? was absolutely yeah. fascinating. We'll be perfectly clear. No one would have ever associated Anthony Bourdain with a vegan lifestyle. And he was definitely also not known for being a health-conscious chef. Right. He certainly did not maintain a plant-based diet. But, and there's a huge but here, he did have a true passion for all things ingredients, sourcing, freshness, and how things are made. 
That's why we wanted to partner with Sakara for this podcast. Sakara delivers science-backed, plant-rich nutrition programs and wellness essentials right to your door. The ready-to-eat meals are nutritionally designed to deliver results from weight management and eased bloat to boosted energy and clearer skin. And on top of all of the nutritional benefits, their food just simply tastes really good. Yeah, it's fresh and tastes unlike any other at-your-door meal. I feel like Sakara's food could really be suitable for any diet or lifestyle. I'm not vegan and I love it. It's just good food. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash Bourdain or enter code Bourdain at checkout. This is really an awesome deal. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash Bourdain to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash B-O-U-R-D-A-I-N. Again, Sakara dot com slash Bourdain. When's the last time you traveled to Ukraine and what is the food and culture scene like there now? I think I've been there maybe seven years ago on another feature film shoot. It was more, I think, actually in uh, Crimea, I would think. We didn't have to go to uh, Kiev at that time. Yeah, because Crimea, I'm sure you understand, it's... uh, probably most beautiful part of the world. It's like, you know, Black Sea and uh, beautiful scenery. You have the mountains, you have the beach. So it's paradise and it's always good for cinematography. Not too much changed, honestly. Much more of a street food vendors, especially in the Black Sea with uh, some kind of a seafood. uh, And definitely shashlik. You don't have to be Ukrainian or Russian to love shashlik. You know, this shish kebab, the grilled you know, meat, everything related to the street food, because you could always do it like as a picnic, find uh, the right grilled meat and do it on the fire. That's very interesting. Obviously, there's a lot happening in Ukraine today, and you haven't been in seven years. So I'm sure that maybe things are different currently, mm-hmm. given the given the war. But on a separate note, the chances of our listeners maybe going to Ukraine right now are slim. But you were in Brighton Beach, New York with Tony. Do you have any favorite spots there? Brighton Beach has been changed a lot since it was farewell to no reservation. So it's 2012. Actually, the last time I was there very recently in uh, May, another interesting character who lives there invited me. He became a very committed fan of the show. He's of Uzbek descent. Somehow, I don't remember his long story. He must be 30 something now ended up in the u.s he went into the u.s army and was serving somewhere either afghanistan or in iraq i won't recall but something very dramatic kind of like a war zone you know he was much in distress he didn't speak uh, good english at that time not too many friends he was like probably 24 at that time and he saw i, I don't remember if it was uzbekistan episode when you know cnn i guess rebroadcast them you know outside of the u.s And he said that that show brought him back to his motherland and kind of inspired me. He was kind of on the brink of a psychological drama at that point. So Tony primarily made him feel like, you know, you can survive anywhere as long as you find something you really want to do. So he completed his uh, military course, uh, got into a good college. He was just actually completing his MBA and he said, Zamir, like, I owe you. Thank you for bringing Tony to my homeland. So let me reciprocate and mm-hmm. let's meet up. So he was following me for quite some time. And that was the time I decided to go there. And he invited me to the place 
I've never seen before. So that's very new. Omar Khayyam, it's kind of, you know, deceiving you, though it's Uzbek restaurant, but it's like Omar Khayyam, famous uh, poet from, I guess, mid-ages. In Brighton Beach, I think it was the fifth uh, Brighton, uh, fifth street of Brighton. Omar Hayam. And it was probably the best food I've ever had, Uzbek food outside of Uzbekistan. I have you never seen this there. place and I go to Brighton Beach all the time. I always go to a place called Cafe Kashkar for like the Uyghur food. Have you ever been to, there's a Samsa place right off the Brighton Beach subway. It's it's called uh, Brighton Tan- Tandir. I did try Samsa on a, on a separate visit, but this time he insisted. I wasn't sure whether I really want Uzbek because sometimes it's too fatty. I thought maybe we'll be on this uh, famous Tatiana place right on the uh, you know, on, on oh the yes. boardwalk. He knew the chef, the Uzbek chef, and that was unbelievable. So guys, if you ever come back to take an interesting dive into the ocean or spend the day uh, with Brighton Beach community, and it did change a lot. I'm sure you know that there are much more Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, Tajik people moving in for one simple reason. People still speak Russian. And that's why sometimes even they are called Russians, no matter that they don't look like Russians. But those who are Russian speakers, so be prepared, generically still love to visit this old Soviet Union meccas of food, like Georgian place. It's interesting that you said the concept of everything and everyone is Russian, because for the longest time, I always told people I was Russian, Mm -hmm. even though I'm not. Uh My parents were born in Ukraine, but I speak Russian, but it was just easier to say Russian. But we're Jewish and, you know, that's a whole separate thing, like ethnically Jewish. Mm But it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're Russian. A lot of our listeners have been inspired by Anthony Bourdain to travel often. They're often on the go. If you're traveling, staying in a lot of hotels, taking chances with new foods in new places, which I love to do, it's easy to neglect your normal routines, especially when it comes to your health. Exactly. And that's why it's really important for us to address health and wellness on this podcast. So our next partner is Athletic Greens. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a nutritional drink that offers you a healthy routine, especially if you're constantly on the go. And honestly, I love the taste of AG1 by Athletic Greens. And I love the simplicity of it. The simplicity is perfect for travelers. I love how I feel throughout the day after having a glass of AG1 by Athletic Greens after I wake up in the morning. I really do feel energized and ready to get things done. You need to try it out for yourself. Why take a bunch of different capsules and supplements when you can just mix one scoop of powder into water? Once a day, why not do that? Exactly. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients of the highest quality that give me major benefits like gut and mood support, boosted energy, and even healthier looking skin, hair, and nails, which we love. Athletic Greens is giving our listeners a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Bourdain. That's B-O-U-R-D-A-I-N. That's athleticgreens.com slash Bourdain. Be sure to check it out. So you launched your Zamir Vodka, right? And you, and you call it the peacemaking tool, right? Which I love mm-hmm. that. Love that. Completely agree with that. And I was just curious, how did Tony inspire that venture? Okay. Here's a revelation. I don't think I announced that ever mm-hmm. publicly. I'm sure you remember that he was planning and was coming very close to open his food court. So that was about 2000. 14 and once we were in georgia i guess 2015 and he said more like a joke so listen if uh, the food court is open some of the restaurants will be booze licensed so you like vodka you know i like vodka so why don't you come up with your own brand and i said you must be like joking he said no 
knowing that Tony always delivers what he promises. And he said, well, once it's successful, not that it's mm-hmm. a piece of shit. It took me a couple of months to find the right supplier of the winter crop wheat. Because, you know, if I deliver something, it has to be good. And I thought, you know, it's public domain. There's nothing more authentic than mm-hmm. the real old Russian Tsar vodka recipe. It has to be winter crop wheat because it it, it has everything. It has that kind of a little bit of a flavor, like sweetness, mm-hmm. and it has a kick at the end. So anyway, to cut a long story short, since Buffalo became more of my second home when I'm in the U.S., thanks to Tony in uh, 2009, he introduced me thinking that I would hate that uh, part of the U.S., by the way, again, in the freezing cold, again, January. So it was mystery that we always wanted to do something in the freezing cold. So I, I had many friends in Buffalo, and when I spoke with them, they definitely said, well, you know, we have winter farmers, so why don't we help you find someone? I found farmer. It was really good quality, a winter crop. We did experiment with my spiritual advisor in, you know, figurative mm-hmm. and literary sense from Rochester, New York. And the farm was not far. He did recommend some different ideas of water source. So I picked mm-hmm. up the Cayuga Lake Purified. It had more minerals than anybody else. I managed to have 200 bottles as a very test kind of a vodka to schmooze around different chefs and different geographic locations in the U.S. just to test with them. What Mm -hmm. would they say? They they tested and we liked it both in St. Louis, Buffalo, Florida. So then I sent it to Tony. I left, I think, a bottle at ZPZ office. He wasn't in New York. So he did send me an email, I think, or call me. I won't recall, but he did say, Zamir, I tested. It's great. But as a friend, I cannot help you, even if you just, he knew that it wasn't yet legally like produced. It was just the test. He endorsed Balvenie, that scotch, Uh one of his favorite scotches. And he had the no compete clause. I said, Tony, don't worry. As long as you like it and the chefs like it, let me do it. Mm -hmm. So I produced, I think, the first 2000 certificate of approval, you know, with the, the, the real distillery, not like homemade style. And uh, people did like it, but sadly, for Tony and for myself, his project never took off. So for the moment, I still keep it in a very small, limited distribution, primarily in Buffalo, because that's where people liked it. And it helps them to connect to me. It helps me when I get back. And once I have a little bit of a supply going outside of New York City, we do like more charity events for the last mm-hmm. four years. To remember Tony, it's about birthday or, or his departure day. I have some fundraising for suicide prevention. So I primarily use it for the events rather than just, oh, you know, that's sadly. So whenever I'm back to, to US, which could be April, I uh, hope we'll have a chance to go to Brighton Beach and use it in that uh, Uzbek restaurant. We'll have to bring a bottle and uh, take shots as we yeah. drink, as 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 we eat. Where were you when you got the news of Tony's passing? And uh, can you maybe reflect on that a little bit for us? Well, once again, it's Buffalo. And uh, it was early in the morning, like uh, normally that train I take to New York, 7.15 or 7.30 a.m. And uh, my friend uh, Leo, he put me on the train. I was about just, you know, to fall asleep because, you know, it's like 7.30 or 8 hours train ride. So Leo calls me back, like probably it was like 20 minutes on the road, so to say. And he said, you know what happened? I said, what, what do you mean? I was probably asleep. He said, you know, Bordet's dad. I said, no fucking way. I thought it was like not a bad joke. I couldn't even, you know, connect the dots, you know, when you're mm-hmm. trying to sleep. So I switched on my phone. 
Well, actually, it was on mute. So it just, I think it was vibrating. That's why I probably reacted because, yeah, I definitely put it on mute. And then I started searching and then saw that CNN and, um, you know, other reviews and that. And it was definitely shot. I still couldn't believe it, you know, because uh, I have not talked to Tony that year. And I think the physical last meeting was, I guess, when... Uh, I was in New York and it coincided. He was at ZPC doing some post-edit. Probably it was the previous year, like 2017. And we were definitely in touch because I needed his advice on, you know, the book he urged me to write. Mm. I'm still right. Hopefully this year it will be the time to deliver and you will be the first people to know if it comes to that final situation. Hopefully it will. There was no sign. There was nothing indicative of something like that, which might happen. We may be all naive because sometimes people don't show the things they they live through. And so that was definitely a big shock. For probably eight hours, I didn't want to talk to anyone. There were some calls from some journalists. And uh, interestingly enough, when I got into New York, like it was about 3 p.m., without any plan, you know, when you're like under a, you know, emotional stress, you do something which is wasn't meant to be. I think it was Penn Station. So you could only imagine that I started walking, though I had like pretty heavy bag, and there was a vodka, a bottle of my vodka, which I didn't open, which was meant probably to be drunk immediately, but somehow uh, I didn't need it. I mean, I was, you know, emotions overwhelmed me more than anything else. So I did walk into the direction of uh, Lazare Medicine, like 28th, I saw the restaurant, like a French restaurant. Because, yeah, Lazare place was closed. There were many flowers and many... I just forgot that it was already mm -hmm. out of business at that time. Many flowers, people leaving some notes. But I didn't feel like comfortable staying there. It was like still more like open wound. And I still decided to walk further and bumped into that French restaurant, which was like probably two streets away from the Lazard and I thought okay maybe the chef knows Tony and will drink and remember him and that was exactly what happened uh, you know the staff knew what happened it was like early dinner so it was probably like 4 p.m they were just serving they recognized me and definitely were open to have a shot of vodka I left the bottle and just think tweeted that the guys who are happening to be in um, Manhattan you know feel free to stop by and uh, have a shot Thank you for sharing that with us, Samir. And I know there's going to be a very tough question to ask. Tony, you could describe him. Maybe we could talk about him for days on it. Yeah. We could go through bottles of vodka talking about him. But if you could describe Tony in one word, what word comes to mind? He had the heart of gold. That's beautiful. A amazing human being. And uh, that's why you know, I'm still fucking in the shock. You know, I, I can't count enough people on one hand that warm and uh, eager to help and uh, appreciating what you know men call friendship a big loss we can't imagine what the loss is like for someone who knew him personally but i think it speaks volumes that the loss is felt by people like fabrizio and i who've never met him and mm -hmm. the rest of the world who is feeling this loss which is really what we're hoping to do here with the podcast is honor the legacy mm -hmm. and provide something for the people who miss him whether they knew him or not that's why it's such an honor, you know, speaking to people that were close friends and, you know, got to meet him firsthand and experience him and kind of like go beside him along his journey. And time passes and uh, we meet new people, we meet new situations, a lot of things changes for good and for bad. But I uh, you know people like Tony and the legacy, it's like 
I, I thought it was more like a joke when people say legends never die. But this is the first time I did personally feel that some people like Tony, uh, they stay, you know. For me, pretty often I, you know, remember this or that episode or especially working at the book and um, keeping some of his uh, photos. And some people live forever. It's, it's hard to believe, you know. I'm an atheist like Tony. Somehow I started to believe that there is, you know, afterlife. So sometimes in my mind, I'm talking to him. I'm asking some questions, ways to get some answers, what I try to achieve. And sometimes it sucks. But the line he like told me a couple of times, Amir, if you really want to achieve something and you believe in it, I know you can do it. Go for it. So I hope in the book there'll be much more of a, a real examples of, of his influence, both on me as a filmmaker, someone who started to lose that fear factor inborn in me as a you know Crimean Jews, you know, born in Russia, where you know still anti-Semitic and pretty anti-peace kind of things happening these days. But you know, his message like, hold on, you can do it, push it makes me feel like, yeah, I can't fuck up. I need to push it. I don't want to undermine his trust. So mm. that's amazing. Thank you. We're going to have to uh, keep us posted on the books. We're looking forward to reading more in your book and just staying in touch in general and having some Zamir vodka in Brighton Beach with you. Absolutely. Thank keep you. me in the loop. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank you so much for your time and, you know, for being the icon you are and <laughs> and talking to us about all your time with Tony. We really, really appreciate it. And, all the um, stories, everything, all the yeah. kind words and stuff. Thanks, we... thanks for sharing yeah. with us. Thank, Thank you, you guys. So much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain. Friends of Anthony Bourdain is produced by Haley Drazen of Hey Now Media and Brandon Brown. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Follow along on Instagram and TikTok at Friends of Anthony Bourdain. And don't forget to visit friendsofanthonybourdain.com.